it's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not and, as um, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of October 23rd, 2017. On this week's show, we'll talk with ESPN's Howard Bryant about the World Series matchup between the Houston Astros and Los Angeles Dodgers, and the Washington Nationals' decision not to retain their manager, Dusty Baker, who led the team to -to back-to-back division titles. We'll also speak with Kevin Arnovitz of ESPN about the Milwaukee Bucks' Giannis Antetokounmpo, a.k.a. the Greek Freak, who's off to one of the best starts in NBA history, and Alan Siegel, who's written about The Simpsons for Slate and The Ringer, will join us for a conversation about the mockumentary Springfield of Dreams, The Legend of Homer Simpson, released this past weekend upon the 25th anniversary of the classic episode Homer at the Bat, where an Ozzie Smith disappeared in the Springfield mystery spot and Ken Griffey Jr.'s jaw became grotesquely swollen. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hey, Josh. So I actually had to do that part for Stefan because we forgot to record this intro and then Stefan left the office. He's going to be really surprised when he hears this show, when it gets uh, released on Monday evening. But what other option do we have? Stefan says hello. You'll hear from him in a second when we do our first segment, which is starting now. On Saturday night in Houston, the Astros, who I'm still having a hard time believing, are in the American League. It's confusing. They beat the New York Yankees 4 to nothing to make it to the World Series for the first time since they lost to the Chicago White Sox in 2005, which is A World Series, I also still have a hard time believing happened, but we can move on from that. I had totally forgotten that the Astros actually made a World Series. You don't remember Jeff Blum's home run in the 14th inning? Apparently not. Of Game 3? How could you forget? Um, (laughs) You don't remember El Duque? (laughs) Yeah, you don't remember El Duque? Come on, Stefan. Uh, The Astros will be taking on the Los Angeles Dodgers. The Astros have... Made the World Series more recently than the Dodgers. First time since 88. Uh, The series starts Tuesday night with Dallas Keuchel taking on Clayton Kershaw in Game 1 in L.A. Justin Verlander, who just had an amazing ALCS, will go against either Rich Hill 
or you Darvish in game two. Joining us now to discuss uh, the World Series and other baseball matters is Howard Bryant of ESPN. He was so excited about Jeff Blum's home run in the 14th inning of game three of the 2005 World Series. He just had to jump in. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> How's it going, Howard? It's going well. You know, what I remember about that series more than anything else, of course, was the great El Duque because he was he was so Orlando Hernandez was so fantastic in a relief role in the in the division series against the defending champion Red Sox. And that was the that was the postseason where the Chicago White Sox starting pitching could not be beaten. They all the guys went at least seven innings, like in every start in the World Series. And the Houston Astros are still looking for their first World Series win. They got swept, and that series was over in a hurry. So no wonder Stefan doesn't remember it because if you blinked, you missed it. I remember that the White Sox won a World Series. I didn't remember, <laughs> I remember who they, they played. played. Exactly because they it won. happened so fast. Exactly, it was done. So Kershaw has kind of a little bit gotten over his playoff hex this year. And as I mentioned in the intro, Justin Verlander was just awesome in the ALCS. And this had been a postseason that was defined by starting pitchers not doing very well in this sort of new era of relief pitcher supremacy. So it'll be interesting to see if in the series, like what the what the hooks are from the managers, whether it turns into a Kershaw-Verlander sort of duel or or whether we end up with like the battle of uh, Kenley Jansen versus uh, Will Harris or something. Versus Ken Giles, exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that what you're going to get in this series, I, I, you know, I can't say for certain, and this is going to sound awful, but I've been known to sound awful sometimes. Uh <laughs> I don't know if I trust Clayton Kershaw in this. And and the only reason is because there's still just something about him in the postseason in terms of length. That he's a six-inning pitcher in the postseason, and that just doesn't make sense. In the meantime, Justin Verlander is the real deal. And I think one really interesting thing about when you're watching pitching, and you're especially baseball, there has been a feeling, at least over the last couple of seasons, that Verlander was done that he had thrown too many pitches, that he just didn't have the same dominance. But all he really needed was a change of scenery. I think they got tired of losing up there, and that you start to lose a little bit of your edge. Because if you watch what he did in the two games against the Yankees in the ALCS, he's Justin Verlander again. I picked the Dodgers to win this series in six games. However, the one wild card to me in this series is Verlander. I think it's very interesting as well that you're talking about the drought here, that I know Major League Baseball was just dying for a Yankees-Dodgers World Series. It's what they wanted. And I know this probably feels like, you know, 1990 weekend series in June, National League West Astros-Dodgers. Well, it is amazing how even though you have a lot of money, it's how you manage the money that tends to matter. And how much money you had mattered a lot more in the 90s than it does now. Um, It certainly (laughs) helps. But we've seen team after team after team succeed for other reasons than purely the size of their payroll. And the Astros certainly are an embodiment of that. I mean, this is not a, you know, getting Justin Verlander at the trading deadline was a splurge. It's not surprising that um, we would all think, oh, Dodgers Yankees would have been so much better. I'm not convinced for, for baseball. Well, but I'm I'm going to say well, for Major League Baseball, I, not not the game on right, the field, right, but right. the rate ratings. The ratings sure. Right, right. But it is, I think, the case that the Astros are a more 
fun and interesting and exciting team than the Yankees. And as far as players that fans should know and should be excited to watch, it's hard to beat the you know Astros offense, which we haven't mentioned yet. We talked last week about Altuve, Correa, you know Bregman, George Springer. I mean, these are yeah. the guys that baseball fans and the sport should be happy to get this platform. Yeah, and it's not that they shouldn't be happy to get Aaron Judge and Gary Sanchez on a platform, but the Yankees, you know, to be to be truthful, had players that, you know, Chase Headley, Todd Frazier, that you're not going to get super excited about as the future faces of baseball. Two two separate conversations. Um, the one conversation is baseball trying to showcase. And your baseball showcase, of course, is, look, we always talk about this. I refer to it as the four legs of the table. Baseball's table, it's four legs historically since the 1800s and then since 1901 with the incorporation of the American League. Red Sox, Yankees, Dodgers, Cardinals. That's Major League Baseball. If you get two of those four in the World Series, that's what they always want. And to have to have had the opportunity of a Red Sox-Yankees, I'm sorry, of a, of a Yankees-Dodgers World Series which you haven't had since Mr. May, Dave Winfield, Fernando, and Reggie back in 81. You know baseball was salivating for that. Separate issue, you got the two best teams in baseball playing each other right now in the World Series. Let's not forget, you've got 200-win teams going at it. And for most of the season, before Cleveland hit their 22-game win streak, these were the two teams that we wanted to see, if you want the best, playing the best. And that's, to me, the most important thing about where baseball is right now, because you've got the extra layers of playoffs. Very rarely do you get the two best teams actually meeting each other. The Washington Nationals have won four division titles in the last six seasons. They weren't the best uh, team this year, but they've been maybe the most consistent or one of the most consistent teams in the majors for the last six years. And yet, as you wrote um, in ESPN uh, this past week, Howard, they've had like 5 million different managers. Mm -hmm. Um, The latest was Dusty Baker, who signed a two-year deal a couple years ago, led them to two division titles, led them to a 4-1 lead in the fifth inning of a winner-take-all game in this year's with Max Scherzer on the mound. And yet that wasn't enough for the Nationals to offer him a contract extension. Um, You've written about this. You've tweeted about it extensively, Howard. But for folks who aren't familiar, like, what are your thoughts on on what's going on here with this team and with Dusty Baker? Well, once again, let's start with the team. It's a bad organization. That's the first thing. The Washington Nationals, and I keep asking myself, who the hell do these guys think they are? When did they turn into the New York Yankees? To the, the arrogance that that organization has that they seem to believe that they are in some sort of upper echelon team where winning, for, for Mike Rizzo to say, winning a lot of games and division titles isn't good enough. I'm thinking it's not. It kind of is, actually. This is what you're doing. You can't, you can't win the, ALC, the NLCS or the World Series without winning a lot of games and winning the division, for the most part. And so... They've had this issue organizationally. They've got bad owners. The learners are are cheap. They don't care about the managerial position. They have they have proven this by also buying into this notion that we're cursed. We're cursed. You're not cursed. You've only been there 13 years. Stop it. Put a sock in it, okay? And you haven't been the best team 
Dusty Baker is aware of this. So you spent a lot of time with him, Howard. Uh, you wrote a profile of him a few years ago where you went out to, to his place in California, right? Vineyard. Yep. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you raise the issue of how he is perceived as a manager because of his race. And Dusty admitted to you that he is always viewed as a player's manager, which is code for being not smart. That was that's, the, right. that's the rap against Dusty Baker. He's not smart. There's a lot going on when you call someone, when you use these sort of code descriptions well, for players and managers. That's right. that's right. And especially when Ron Gardenhire, who just got hired as manager of the Tigers, Gardenhire got a three-year deal. Ron Gardenhire is 6-21 and 21 in the postseason. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody brought up, I don't remember what the word was, if you read his press conference, and he immediately immediately said, let's not use too many big words here. I'm just simple folk. And I'm thinking, and I'm thinking, once again, this is that white man dispensation that you, you get. You imagine? Can, Could exactly. you imagine? Exactly. If, if a black man said that, uh, don't, don't use too many big words. I'm not that smart. I don't think they'd all be yucking it up in the press room. And, and once again, this is that thing that people say immediately. They try to dismiss these racial implications because you're not the target. But once again, can you imagine a black manager breaking the ice with that one? You were so fired up about the numbers here. You tweeted out that Garden Hire was 6-21. and 21. You mentioned that Joe Torre lost four division series between 02 and 07. Lou Pinella lost his last eight playoff games. Terry Francona, in just two years, has yeah. lost six elimination games. In a row. In a row. <laughs> and to not understand as an organization... And to articulate what Mike Rizzo articulated, making him sound like George Steinbrenner, is idiotic. The playoffs are the frigging playoffs. Well, and it's also idiotic. And to me, I wasn't even that for for those comments. I wasn't directing them necessarily at the Washington Nationals, even though they deserved it 100 percent. I was directing them at the public who's decided to buy into this narrative. And it's completely inaccurate. I mean, let's and and it was really based on one thing. It wasn't really the intelligence part on that side. It was the underperformed thing. Well, Dusty's teams have underperformed in the postseason. And I'm thinking, okay, well, one, could we stop using the friggin Wall Street talk? Um, you know, are we talking about, you know, is this a Barron's update or are we talking about baseball? And so there's that. But then there's also Lou Pinella had a 116 win team in 2001 and they didn't even make the World Series. So let's not talk about underperforming. Like compare Dusty to Gene Mock, who famously collapsed with the 64 Phillies and collapsed against the Red Sox famously in 86. And I... And I look at this and I'm thinking to myself, Dusty's teams never collapsed down the stretch. They lost in 93 to an unbelievable Braves team. But Dusty's teams haven't won. If you look at his postseason, I think seven of 11 of his postseason appearances have gone to a deciding fifth or seventh game. My two thoughts on uh, the Nationals and Dusty Baker are number one, I feel like the learners get a pass somewhat here in D.C. and maybe even nationally because – Dan Snyder is such a nightmare. Exactly right. And, you know, the thing that was local news here that probably didn't make national news is that they wouldn't spend the, you know, $100,000 to keep the metro open so that fans couldn't stay, uh, you know, to actually see the end of these games. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, local businesses eventually chipped in and paid the money, but they just straight up refused to pay. So they're like so psychotically obsessed 
with winning in the playoffs, and yet they don't want their fans well, to be able to stay until the end of the game? That tells me that they're not psychotically obsessed about winning in the playoffs. <laughs> they're psychotically obsessed about, you know, where it really went downhill for Dusty Baker was during the regular season. At one point, he talked about wanting a raise and an extension. And that, and, and, and it tells you that these owners have no respect for that position. And I remember being in Dusty's house up in Sacramento, and we're walking around, and I said to him, I got to tell you, when you took this job, I was a little mad at you. And he said, why? And I said, it wasn't the fact that you took the job. It was the fact that when you were out of the game, and he was out of the game for two years, he won 90 games three years with the, with the Reds, and then they fired him. And instead of getting hired immediately, because who wouldn't want a 97-win manager, he was out of the game for two years. And during those two years, when there was a job opening, he was the one calling. He called Seattle, hat in hand. He called San Diego, hat in hand. He called Miami. He called Washington. And I said to him, you know, at the time, you know, you've got 1,700 wins. You won the World Series as a player. You were an all-star player. You were a three-time manager of the year. Why are you cold calling these people? We always talk in this country about affirmative action and the most qualified guy and we just want the best guy and here's a guy who has to crawl on his knees to people who are not as accomplished as he why did you do this and he said to me because it's in me i'm a i'm a baseball man and i want to contribute and i want to manage and i wanted to do this and i and i and i felt like and he's like i don't see it this way i I felt like if I had something to contribute, then I was going to try to contribute. I wanted everyone to know that I wasn't retired. And I, I couldn't argue that. I didn't like it, but I couldn't argue it because I'm thinking, well, this is the smart move for somebody who cares. He cares about this. Howard Bryant is a writer for ESPN. Howard, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, my pleasure, as always. Before we get to the Greek freak, Giannis Antetokounmpo, heads up then in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we are going to talk about The Simpsons. We're talking about the Simpsons softball episode later in the show. And in our bonus segment, we're going to talk about other great Simpsons sports moments with Alan Siegel, the best episodes that have some connection to the games we love. If you want to hear that conversation, please join Slate Plus for just $35 a year. If you do join, you can get a Slate tote bag, and you can get bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts every single week. Sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Οι Milwaukee Bucks έχουν νικήσει δύο από τα πρώτα τρία παιχνίδια στο καινούριο NBA πρωτάθλημα. Γιατί? Γιατί ο Γιάννης Αντενοκούπο, ο ελληνικός φρικτός, στα αγγλικά το Greek Freak, σημείωσε 37, 34 και 44 πόντους. Oh, I'm sorry, that was the intro for the Greek version of this podcast. Κλείστε το τηλέφωνο και ακούστε, but you probably figured out that I'm speaking of Giannis 
who scored 37, 34, and a career-high 44 points in the Milwaukee Bucks' first three games and is creating crazy gifts, blocking shots at the buzzer, elevating to alley-oop dunk a foot above and three feet away from the rim, and taking one dribble from half-court and dunking. Kevin Arnovitz of ESPN is here to talk about Oelnikos Friktos. Hey, Kevin. You're totally showing off. I am. I don't get to do that very often. But I'm doing it now. Kevin, Tom Lay wrote on Deadspin last week that this could be the year of Giannis. You have a piece in the current issue of ESPN, the magazine, about Giannis and the Bucks. If Giannis can nudge up his three-point shooting, you wrote, he'll be the NBA's most complete under-25 player since LeBron James. I know we're just three games into the season, but can we drop the will-be because Giannis has been sick? He's been incredible. I was in the Milwaukee Bucks training facility a couple weeks before training camp officially started, which is always an interesting barometer in the NBA. Uh, There's this culture of working out before you're actually under contractual obligation to do so. And it was incredible how hard he was going uh, in early, mid-September. And in some ways, you you don't want to invest too much in that, but you just got a sense that he was locked in um, really early. And when you combine that with just the absolutely freakish body. I mean, his body type has been sort of this thing that sports science geeks have been talking about for three or four years, like this this thing they just discovered on another planet that, that the rest of the kind of earthly community hasn't been exposed to yet, but we'll wait till you see it in action. So my hobby horse here, I'm going to get back to Giannis in approximately 10 seconds, but I feel like people don't give Anthony Davis enough credit just because of the nightmare organization that he's in. But you could argue, right, that Giannis, because of his passing ability, maybe he's even a better defender than Davis is. Like, would you even argue that compared to players like Anthony Davis and Carl Anthony Towns, who are these like really young big men who are part of his generation, do you think that Giannis even stands out from that crowd? Yeah, I I think there's a next level of athleticism. I think there's a next level of vision in in terms of the way he just sees the court in motion. And, you know, we talk about unicorns a lot, but I just think in terms of sheer versatility, like the ability to guard fives, guard ones, play the point, post up. Again, the shot needs to come around, though Towns Towns is fairly decent from the perimeter. Davis has had his moments, but I, I just think... He, he kind of, tr- I mean, I know we've been talking about the end of positional basketball, but there are degrees to which that's true. He's the nth degree to which that's true. In your piece on ESPN, Kevin, you talk about the pursuit of length as uh, an overall strategy for the Bucks. that this is kind of a, a team in a smaller market trying to exploit a market inefficiency to gain some advantage over clubs that can sign more established stars. How does this work as a strategy, do you believe? I mean, you seem to be on board with it. I mean, I I don't think it's it's an option for this team. I think given who they are, given the fact that they're never going to probably be able to congregate a big three, you know, three of the top 15 players there, just because the market isn't terribly appealing to a lot of players. Giannis actually is an exception in that regard. But I think given the length and given the youth, um, and, and given the fact that they're starting to gel as a complete unit, I think this might be their route is you have Giannis basically viewing not a top five offensive team, but a five to 10 ranked offensive team. And then you get a top three defense. That's a recipe that generally brings a team to playing Memorial Day basketball in the conference semifinals. And then you go from there. So 
at a time when there's a v- decreasing stigma about foreign players, I don't think any front offices are are hesitant to like go abroad to get a high draft pick anymore. Giannis's story is still incredible about, you know, the fact that he didn't even come from the top division of Greek basketball <laughs> and, you know, was a first round pick, was considered a reach for the Bucks to take him then. Just he had an v- extremely non-traditional path to the NBA. I'm curious if now, you know, he's 22, does he still, you know, either himself or in his teammates or in the NBA community, does he still kind of feel like he's a stranger in a strange land? Or is he just like a totally like, you know, conventional American NBA dude at this point? Like, is he like fit in perfectly? Yeah, I don't think he's conventional. Um, but I do think he, I think the degree to which you're seeing him playing right now is an expression of the fact that, that he is now fully comfortable. I mean, it's really funny how he came to the NBA because my understanding is only four teams sent scouts or GMs to see him in person in 2013 with that second tier Greek team. He was this guy you'd hear about among scouts and college personnel people who like this band you'd heard in a garage in Athens, Georgia that like only you knew about. And these couple other cool kids knew about, but was more legend than reality and was very young and raw. And, you know, only a few teams really, really had a familiarity with his game. And of course, so much of NBA front office life is being risk averse, especially when it comes to the draft. I mean, it's why the draft boards are so similar, even though the experiences of the players being drafted are so diverse is that there is sort of a herd mentality. You don't want to be the GM who drafts a European bust. Has his success changed the calculus of front offices? Like if Giannis came around in 2017, would more than four teams send scouts? And and, 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 and the corollary of that is, isn't it, it's kind of amazing that the Bucks made the decision to pick him at 15 when he was so underscouted. Yeah, and look, it was part of that length strategy and they decided that look, this guy conforms to what we're trying to do. I think things are different, Josh. I mean, Luka Doncic is probably going to be the first pick in next year's draft, and he is a Slovenian 18-year-old star. Uh, Again, one of these unicorn, positionless players with a European pedigree. So I think things are changing. I think Euro skepticism is officially over. Yeah, Porzingis was a number four. Right, and I I think the, the age of Euro skepticism in the NBA is over. I still think you have some teams that are more inclined to international prospecting than others. Denver, San Antonio versus I think Miami is always a team under Riley that, you know, for years wouldn't even entertain European scouting, thought it was an absolute, you know, waste of time or, or this thing that, you know, teams that didn't have the power of persuasion to bring the best free agents look to because they needed some advantage. But, but the real basketball, basketball people, you know, if you couldn't find what you were looking for domestically, then you weren't worth your weight. Giannis's background to touch on it for one more second is, is remarkable from a Greek standpoint too. his parents were Nigerian. He was born in Greece. Um, they, they didn't have much money from what I've read or understand. They were selling stuff in the Agora in Athens, um, on the streets, um, that he even got up to the second division by age 18 is pretty impressive and interesting in and of itself given the, the, that Greek basketball is not at a level in terms of its youth development programs, I would imagine, as other European countries and certainly 
you know, here in the United States. Um, now he is, you know, this megastar. And you were asking Josh about his personality and whether he fits in. Look, his Greek, his English is better than my Greek. And he seems incredibly dedicated. That to, doesn't really help me because I don't have a sense of how good or bad your Greek is. Trust me that his English <laughs> is pretty good then because my Greek has lost a lot of its, uh, its game over the last uh, couple of decades. Um, and he is, he's perceived to be a really genuine guy. He lives with his family. He's got two little brothers that he attends to. They're both great basketball players. Um, his father died of a heart attack last month. And Giannis was very emotional about it. Uh, after the win on Saturday night in Portland, he wrote on the game ball, this is for daddy. We got a win tonight. I had 44 points. He seems like a sweet person. Um, he's incredible. And uh, when I was in Milwaukee, he was reading more than a hero. Uh, Muhammad Ali's life lessons presented through the, his daughter's eyes written by Hannah Ali. And, and he came over and, and I was sitting there talking with one of his coaches and the coach asked him how the book was going. And, and, and he sort of brooded for a second and he said, you know, it was interesting that Ali said that he never really achieved this great kind of the full spiritual life until his retirement. And it had dawned on Giannis at that moment when reading it, that that was probably true, that he kind of looked around and was taking inventory of his life, even at age, you know, 23 and, and saying to himself, you know, yeah, there's just simply no time to develop a fully formed spiritual life. And. And I asked him, I was like, does that make you sad? And he's like, no, not really. It's just this great thing you have to look forward to in retirement. But I'm now, you know, he's fully accepted the idea. And it just, it kind of struck me as an incredibly kind of deep thought for, especially to, to express in English. Um, for a kid who didn't really speak um, much English four years ago, I went to the, uh, in 2000, the year he was drafted that summer, I went to the buffet at Mandalay Bay with him. Um, <laughs> And we had we this had is a lunch. great this is a great lead to a Kevin Arnovitz anecdote. <laughs> All right, no, it, it was it, it was kind of part of the shtick, right? Because I wanted to see, hey, what does this large, you know, eighteen year old person eat when you big man that? eats big food? I get it, right? Exactly, and and so that was the shtick, and um, and, you know, at the time he was he, you know, his he he really didn't speak much English and was painfully shy, um, and I'm a little weird, so I, I can't imagine what, what that experience was probably like, but it, it was he, he's kind of. Um, Malcolm Brogdon, his teammate, calls him like, incredibly introverted, um, which kind of belies the big smile and, and the warm personality. And, um, you know, the Bucks, he, he was last season, he was he was known to like kind of wear that that the Bucks had given away as part of a promotion, like the, that Fargo Francis McDormand hat, but with like a Milwaukee Bucks thing. And you know, he was sort of wearing that around and he has this playful public persona. But um, I, I think he's kind of a killer in, in terms of work ethic, dedication and wanting it. And uh, I just I'm kind of I'm, I guess I'm, all this is to say I'm buying high on Giannis right now. Like, I really think it's going to happen. I like the the anecdote in your piece, not just about Giannis, but about the Bucks and this night school that they have uh, instituted there, the voluntary attendance. And I'm always leery of voluntary anything in professional sports <laughs> because they end up Fair. not being voluntary. But. I, I did detect a sense of of genuineness in the player's desire to go there, and Giannis's in particular. Yeah, and I, watch I get film the sense and work out a little more. Yeah, I'm with you because there's a degree of bullshit to sort of you know every team will tell media members, oh yeah, and our guys come back at night and they work hard, and I mean largely you get told that by often by coaching staffs to to reaffirm the idea that they're doing their jobs, but um, it is kind of real. Um, I had to kind of probe about it. It just it was interesting to me they were all coming back at night every night. Um, which isn't always the case, and that it seemed, you know, relatively organized. And they made very sure to tell me 
Kevin, this is voluntary because I, I think contractually, especially before September 25th or whenever media day, they have to officially report it. You, you can't kind of coerce a, a player to do anything, but they, it, it is somewhat formalized and, and Thon Maker and Giannis have these little notebooks um, that they bring to this sort of unofficial film session with assistant coach Sean Sweeney. And, uh, you know, they, they do some drills to begin with. Um, they're gym rats. I mean, I think Thon Maker and, and Giannis Antetokounmpo in particular are just they don't really want to be anywhere else. All right. Last thing. It seems like his reputation within the league is ascending, um, not only with Kobe Bryant telling him he should win the MVP, but, you know, with someone like you who actually knows things, who talks to people in the league, I'm wondering uh, what people say, players or front office folks, about Giannis. Like, where does he rank in terms of the pantheon of NBA stars right now in, in their view? Uh, to use your earlier parallel, I think he's being spoken about the way Anthony Davis was too or three years ago, but with the appreciation that they're doing things more intelligently in Milwaukee than they were in New Orleans, that, you know, the door is open, so to speak, for him to make that top five entree if he wants to. Not so much if he wants to, that, you know, if if circumstances work out. I mean, I think there's an appreciation in the league how much of this is random. Like, I don't don't know that anybody docks it against Anthony Davis. You start to hear murmurs, well, he's not really a great leader. But to me, it's always reverse engineering the analysis. But I think there is a sense that he's sort of where the way we were talking about Anthony Davis two years ago, that if circumstances and and stars align, that he will enter that pantheon. Oh, Kevin Arnovitz, γράφει για το ESPN. Kevin, ευχαριστώ πάρα πολύ. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I thought you'd figure that one out on your own. Um, I mean, am I supposed to say? Is it Efcaristo? Efcaristo. Efcaristo? Close enough. Kevin, thanks, man. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Now I'd like to introduce the new members of our Happy Power Plant family. Our new security guard, Roger Clemens. Hello. Our new janitor, Wade Boggs. How you doing? Our new lunchroom cashier, Ken Griffey Jr. Hey, what's up, guys? Our new, well, uh, we'll make up jobs for these fellas later. Please say hello to Steve Sachs, Don Mattingly, Daryl Strawberry, Ozzy Smith, Mike Sosha, and Jose Canseco. The Simpsons episode Homer at the Bat aired on February 20th, 1992, a fact that has me pondering my own mortality. This was a big moment for America and for 11-year-old Josh, the intersection of our favorite family and baseball heroes Ken Griffey Jr., Ozzy Smith, Roger Clemens, and Jose Canseco, only some of whom were later disgraced. A quick plot synopsis, the Springfield Power Plant softball team was very bad. Then Homer Simpson made a magical bet, and they were good. Then Mr. Burns made a million-dollar bet that the plant team could beat Shelbyville in the championship game and tried to ensure victory by bringing in ringers from the world of Major League Baseball. Hijinks ensued, one of the best episodes ever. Earlier this year, the Baseball Hall of Fame honored Homer and this episode with a mock induction ceremony. And the mockery continued this past weekend with an hour-long mockumentary directed by Morgan Spurlock titled Springfield of Dreams, The Legend of Homer Simpson. 
here to discuss the show and its legacy as one of our nation's foremost Simpsons experts and a writer for The Ringer, Slate, and other places, Mr. Alan Siegel. Hey, Alan. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. I thought you were going to respond like Ken Griffey Jr. Hey, how's it going, guys? (laughs) Um, Anyway, let me say from the jump that this mockumentary was not super-duper great if you did not watch it. No need to lash yourself. Uh, You should go back and watch the original episode that aired in 1992. Um, And for me, the reason I have this conversation was that it was an opportunity to revisit that episode. It was like number eight on your list of top 100 episodes, Alan? I believe so, yeah. It was in the top 10 for sure. So give us some of the context of what was going on in the world, what was going on in The Simpsons when this episode aired in February 1992. So it aired two days after the New Hampshire primary in 92, and that January at the Convention of National Religious Broadcasters, which sounds like a group that The Simpsons would have made up, George Bush on the stump said, we need a nation closer to the Waltons than The Simpsons. So they were, you know, in the president's crosshairs at that point. The irony being is that The Simpsons actually, you know, they went to church every week, so uh, I, I talked to Al Jean, the the showrunner, who said that basically the show is a lot more like the Waltons than George Bush would ever give it credit for. So basically, they were really considered transgressive at the time. And by then, the show had really become a phenomenon, but it still really hadn't had a big-time event episode or very special episode or whatever you want to call it. So, you know... They, so they the ha- celebrity cameos were, like, pretty rare at that point, or it was, like, one... Episode like the Michael, the famous Michael Jackson episode had happened before that, but they never had something like this. Not right. with, not with nine people, right? I think Eric Malinowski in his uh, retrospective on the episode said I think that the most up to that point was four. Right, and not only that, uh, some of the real high profile people that they had, like Dustin Hoffman and Michael Jackson, refused to even be billed as their real names. Like Dustin Hoffman was Sam Etic instead of Dustin Hoffman, and uh, so this episode, like you said, had nine guest stars and. The episode ended up beating the Cosbys and the Olympics, so it really was real great family entertainment. <laughs> the Cosby, yeah, show. exactly. Show, but yeah. yeah, so I guess Stefan at this point, baseball was like a thing that people enjoyed. Mm-hmm. The idea that you could get, uh, you know, a, sh- a show now if you had like Mike Trout. The, the idea that that would be a, a big <laughs> event that that Aaron seems Judge. that yeah. seems like uh, maybe it, it wouldn't be the case anymore, but. I don't know. I don't think it was just me because, like, I think this was probably true for you too, Alan. That like the intersection of baseball nerddom and Simpsons nerddom was just like the greatest moment of my life to date. But I think this was like a that was a widely held belief. It yeah. wasn't. It wasn't just for like eleven year old baseball nerds. Like no, me. no, no, no. I mean, I was in my late twenties, and it was a big event for me. I mean, I was still playing fantasy baseball. This was pre-strike. There was a lot in that episode that was pretty prescient about where baseball was heading, whether we're talking about sabermetrics or about PED use um, or just about sort of the place in the in the lore of sports that that these guys still mattered in a big way to sports fans, that the getting nine of them together was really impressive and really amazing. And it was something that Fox also could advertise in advance that they could promote. Right. To get as large an audience as they were able to for this for the show. I mean, try try imagining now which nine players would you pick beyond Trout. I mean, I 
I admittedly struggle to, to think about who. I don't know. I mean, Judge, Altuve, <laughs> Bellinger. I mean, you could. They're Bellinger. Not, Bellinger. Tune in you know, for Bellinger. Tune in for Bellinger. I mean, there are still great players in baseball. Um, but do they have the cultural cachet that would merit them appearing on a show like The Simpsons? Probably not. You mentioned sabermetrics earlier, and there's a part in the climax of the episode where Mr. Burns pinch hits Homer for Daryl Strawberry to get a good righty-lefty matchup. And, you know, this was 92, which I know, I know it's an obvious point, but it's still, like you said, prescient. So it's pretty funny. Why don't you uh, explain to us where um, this episode came from, who were the minds behind it, and, um, you know, we mentioned <laughs> – PED use and sabermetrics and everything. I mean, the reason that this is a characteristic Simpsons episode is because it's just really strange. Like, there are a lot of just really bizarre references, whether it's to, like, Lord Palmerston or whether it's the, you know, the Zephyr's uniform that Mr. Burns is wearing. Like, those are the kinds of Simpsons touches that make this a classic episode. Yeah, so the writer was John Swartzwelder. And just to give everybody you know, a feel for what he was like. Uh, a couple of years ago, he was incorrectly rumored to have inspired Ron Swanson on Parks and Recreation. So he's kind of this mythical figure. He wrote 59 episodes and, you know, he's about 6'5". He kind of looks like David Crosby, like a young <laughs> David Crosby. And he just, his his comedy from what I've been told is really inspired by old radio serials and like Laurel and Hardy and old timey Americana. And so that really jives, you know, with the subject matter here. I mean, some of the touches in the episode and they, they certainly are very Simpsonsy, as you as you said, Josh. But there was also you, the sense that this was early Simpsons too. That the the way the characters are behaving isn't exactly typical. I mean, Homer ends up being a hero in this episode. Homer's never a hero. He's obviously a hero in a very bumbling way. Can we give away what happens? Do you I think, think so. Josh? Do you think I, it's okay? Twenty five years later, so when he pinch hits for Daryl Strawberry, rather than hitting a grand slam with the score tied forty three forty three in the bottom of the ninth, Homer gets hit in the head by the pitch. So the runs which forward. is great because again, you know Homer is a heroic figure in, in a lot of episodes, but like you said, in a very bumbling way. So that it wouldn't have been really true to the show to have him, you know, actually drive in a run. No, but but during the season, he had been a slugger. He had led the team thanks to Wonderbat, which is an obvious reference to the natural. Uh, the natural. Um, and Lisa. I love the scene where Lisa is in the stands and they start the Daryl chant, Daryl, Daryl, and Daryl cries. And Lisa wouldn't do that, would she? That was mean. Yeah, Marge and, was right. And you have Marge, you know, videotaping the whole thing and sounding like a typical mom who has, you know, not really sure what's going on, but uh, is still loving it. All right, back to the mockumentary briefly featured interviews with Nick Offerman, the uh, – aforementioned uh, Ron Swanson, <laughs> as well as Bob Costas. They got a bunch of the players. I think everybody except strawberry. the aforementioned Strawberry. I'm going to uh, get a lot of aforementioned mentions in this show. Um, what did you make of it, Stefan? I thought it was too long. <laughs> like, it was an hour. The Simpsons is a half hour. A half hour <laughs> probably would have sufficed. And it's very Simpsonsy, and there are some terrific moments in here, right, Alan? They, you know, the the way that the Ken Burns overlay 
of this is sort of the mix between interviews with the Simpsons characters in character, obviously animated, and actual live people from the show is terrific. You said Costas, John Thorne, baseball historian, I thought was terrific. Um, and I think people on the on the baseball spectrum in this were great. And then it kind of felt like excess, like Dr. Oz talking about um, the Springfield mystery spot into which um, Ozzie Smith falls in the original episode. Probably not necessary. <laughs> Ezra Klein shows up. Like I didn't quite understand why Ezra Klein needed to be there. Um, Ezra so, Klein always needs to be there. Um, so I, I, I just felt there was too much. Like it was trying a little bit too hard, which surprised me. Yeah, I mean to to piggyback that, you had Tim Gunn talking about sideburns, which was a. <laughs> It was a little strange, but but also I must say I didn't mind yeah. the digressions into the history of sideburns <laughs> yeah, yeah. and into the um, into the, the the battle over who was the greatest English prime minister. I thought that was good because it integrated like Wade Boggs defending that defending his choice in the original show was great. One thing that this did was kind of embrace the nostalgia of both baseball fans and Simpsons fans because if you know anybody that's watched the show is always talking about how it's just not as good as it used to be. So. For them to really embrace a classic episode was was a nice touch, even if it went on a little too long. You really liked Mike Sosha. I loved – I thought Mike Sosha was the star of the mockumentary because he remained in character from the original episode and his delivery was awesome. Let's, uh, let's listen to a, a Mike Sosha clip from, uh, from Springfield of Dreams. The opportunity to work around nuclear materials was very appealing to me. And I thought it was a once-in-a-lifetime shot. Hey, Sosha, I don't get it. You're a rigger, but you're here every night in a core, busting your butthole in radioactive waste. Well, Carl, it's such a relief from the pressures of playing big league ball. I mean, there, you make any kind of mistake, and boom, the press is all over you. Uh-oh. Ah, uh, don't worry about it. Oh, man, is this ever sweet. Uh, we had a little accident at the plant. Um, some of it was my doing. Some of it was obviously um, oversight, but I don't want to throw anyone under the bus right now. That good-for-nothing social was a total amateur. He didn't even spill the whole barrel. So that was integrating some new, for 2017, Mike Sosha commentary with uh, the sound from 1992. Sosha, I think uh, Stefan was right, command performance in this, uh, in this Morgan Spurlock joint. What did you make... Alan, of uh, the appearances of Wade Boggs, Roger Clemens, who is rocking like a kind of interesting hairstyle, tatted up Jose Canseco. Do you think that uh, those fellows acquitted themselves well? I think they did. They kind of poked fun at themselves. And, uh, you know, Clemens made a comment about Homer making the Hall of Fame uh, and said something like, you know, evidently you have to be animated to get in. And, uh, you know, obviously Clemens is probably a little bitter about that. And Canseco made a joke about playing naturally, about Homer hitting all those home runs naturally. So at least they had a sense of the moment. I mean, they were willing to deliver the lines and they showed a sense of humor, which for these guys who, particularly Clemens, who was such an asshole, was kind of refreshing. In Malinowski's piece, I think it was, all of the writers were talking about just how much they loved Steve Sachs, yeah. which was kind of surprising that he was like the most handsome and genuine and nice dude. So at the Hall of Fame in May, I went to the mock induction ceremony, and there was a five or ten minute little exchange with the Simpsons writers and Steve Sachs about how good looking he was. And it was a little, <laughs> it went on a little too long, put it that way. They were enjoying themselves. And uh, I mean, these guys, 
Ozzie Smith, I think I, I talked to him at, at that event, and he said that the top questions he gets are, can he still do a flip? And what was it like being on The Simpsons? And, you know, that's just the power of the show, I think. And Sack says that he's grateful for The Simpsons because it's made people forget that he couldn't throw a ball from second base to first base at, near the end of his career. Thank you for reminding everyone. Also, I just now I want to know whether Ozzy Smith can still do a backflip. Um, let's end with the song, which I had stuck in my head this morning. The phrase Ken Griffey's grotesquely swollen jaw will just be <laughs> enshrined in my memory forever. Uh, maybe we can play a little uh, clip of that and then say we can we can save a longer clip for the outro for the show. But let's let's just hear get a little taste. Well, Mr. Burns had done it, the power plant had won it, with Roger Clemens clucking all the while. Mike Sosha's tragic illness made us smile, while Wade Boggs lay unconscious on the barroom tile. We're talking softball from Maine to San Diego. So talking softball was written by Jeff Martin, who wrote a lot of the songs in The Simpsons, and he actually was the showrunner of a sitcom based on Kornheiser and Wilbon that lasted about a year. It starred uh, Jason Alexander. So, Ooh, I wrote a pan of that for Slate back in the day. <laughs> I'll have to go back <laughs> and, and look at that. that. Yeah. yeah. So he wrote it, and Cashman was brought in to sing it. So it had the authentic feel. That was great. All right. Uh, Alan uh, has written a bunch of stuff about The Simpsons. His most comprehensive piece was the 100 Best Episodes, which you can find on The Ringer. We'll link to it on our show page. Alan, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Now it is time for After Balls. And we did not get into this in our uh, segment just completed, but... Mentioned it. Did we? I guess we did. A little bit. So Mr. Burns, before settling on the likes of Daryl Strawberry and Jose Canseco, uh, his dream team consists of all players who had died like 100 years earlier. Uh, Honus Wagner, Three Finger Brown, other legends. Then in right field, never mentioned by name, like out loud, but you can see it on the little board that Mr. Burns constructs, is Jim Creighton. This was uh, referenced in the mockumentary. Let's hear what baseball historian John Thorne had to say about Mr. Burns' selection of Jim Creighton. I was so impressed with Mr. Burns' knowledge of baseball. He had Hannes Wagner at short, and he had Harry Hooper in the outfield, the star of the 1912 World Series. 
And the knockout, of course, was Creighton in right field because who has heard of Jim Creighton except maybe me? And uh, Burns knew everything about baseball except who was living and who wasn't. <laughs> Jim Creighton, pitcher for the Brooklyn Excelsiors in the 1850s and 60s, didn't strike out once, allegedly, while batting during one season? Yeah, this is from Eric Malinowski's yep, piece. Yep, yep, 20 games, 1860, tragically dead two years later. Well, I would hope that he would be dead uh, or else we would have a major problem. That was but tragic at the time. Tragic at the time. We're over it now. Stefan, what is your Jim Creighton? Well, the Houston Astros were pretty excited about winning the American League pennant on Saturday night. They donned fly the pennant commemorative apparel Stingproof ski goggles in the locker room. Things got really wild, according to Matt Young of the Houston Chronicle. Budweiser was sprayed. Champagne was drunk from the league trophy. Josh Reddick did a Ric Flair strut in an American flag Speedo. There was even a smoke machine. Very respectful. The smoke machine, especially. Yeah. Uh, so good times in the locker room there. But were they as good, Josh, as in say, 1941. Let's check in on how the Brooklyn Dodgers celebrated winning the National League pennant back then. Judson Bailey of the Associated Press accompanied the team on its four-hour train ride from Boston to New York after they clinched. The Brooklyn entourage, he reported, included a Brooklyn undertaker, two bookies, a well-known brain specialist was also on the train. Dodgers president Larry McPhail had called ahead to stock the train with champagne and, quote, by the time the effervescent entourage pulled into Grand Central Station, the Dodgers were hilarious and the train was a wreck. By hilarious, I'm pretty sure Bailey means that the Dodgers were shit-faced. Somebody thought it would be a good idea to rip the shirt off Coach Charlie Dressen, Bailey wrote. And before his chummy companions were finished, they had him almost in the nude. The players then started on each other and more shirts were ripped to pieces within a few minutes than a laundry could do in 10 years. And that was only the beginning. Pee Wee Reese and Pistol Pete Riser prowled up and down the aisles, squirting everybody with champagne until the kids were tipped off. That was something to drink. They then turned to shampooing the porters and waiters with creamed spinach. All of the blinds in the dining car were ripped down, Bailey reported. But alas, he ends the details there. You get the general idea, he wrote. I don't get the general idea. I want more details. Brooklyn fans, meanwhile, started lining up outside Yankee Stadium to buy tickets. Legendary New York Timesman Meyer Berger reported that four of the first five faithful, febrile, and fanatic fans in line were boosters for the bums. That would be the Brooklyn Dodgers. The first was Mrs. Elizabeth Alston, 43 of 520 East 84th Street, a plump Yorkville matron. Third was a puffing, heavyset negress, Mrs. Carrie LaPangue of Harlem, a Yankee fan who remarked, Dem bums ain't got no chance. Mrs. LaPangue was right. The Dodgers would lose the World Series to the Yankees four games to one, one of those losses being the infamous Mickey Owen passed ball on a called third strike that would have ended game four, which meant that now it was time for the Yankees to celebrate. The Times reported on it under the headline, Punches, towels, fly in profusion, world champions celebration, looks and sounds like a free-for-all fight, 
aftermath, more of an ordeal than game. Led by Twinkle Toes George Selkirk and piping-voiced Frank Cressetti, the team shouted yippee as they ran down the Ebbetsfield concourse after the win before tumbling pell-mell into the clubhouse. And that is when, Josh, all heck broke loose. Tommy Heinrich was given a good-natured cuffing while everybody hammered, thumped, and pushed everybody else. It looked like a free-for-all fight. Punches were flying. Bodies were swaying. Trunks were being banged around. Towels flew through the air. The noise was terrific. The mayhem culminated, as mayhem often does, when Coach Art Fletcher jumped on a trunk. He didn't yell for order. He made no signal for assembly. Everybody knew what that meant. A speech? Game balls? No. Song. Strident, certainly not harmonious, but loud song. Two choruses of East Side, West Side. And then, with enthusiasm mounting, Fletcher led the gang in Roll Out the Barrel. I am told that Phil Rizzuto and Joe DiMaggio did not strip to their jock straps and imitate Gorgeous George. Josh, what's your Jim Creighton? The Central Florida Knights football team is 6-0 after a win over Navy this weekend and ranked number 18 in the latest AP poll ahead of Auburn, Stanford, USC, West Virginia, and yes, LSU. The school in Orlando also ranks near the top of the list in college sports when it comes to extravagant athletic department spending. As Will Hobson noted in the Washington Post back in March, the school is planning $25 million in upgrades to its facilities. The lead of that piece describes the centerpiece of this on-campus athletics village. In the artist's rendering, released by University of Central Florida Athletics, the lazy river is crystalline blue as it weaves past the miniature golf course and the sand volleyball courts, turning a bend before it reaches the hot tub. On the patio, a few wooden huts provide a shaded area where, if this was not a facility being built by a state university to attract teenagers— one might expect to find a jovial bartender in a floral patterned shirt blending a pitcher of pina coladas. Athletic director Danny White explained in an interview with the Orlando Sentinel that this is a place for athletes to recover, relax, get to know each other a little bit, kind of like an Olympic village. So we thought of having a leisure pool, some putt-butt golf, some recreational amenities, and the lazy river to really top it off and hopefully make it the most unique athletics village in the country. Unique? Unique, huh? How do you explain that Texas Tech has what it describes as the largest leisure pool on a college campus in the United States with a 640-foot-long lazy river as the centerpiece of the design? How do you like that, Central Florida? And all it cost was $8.4 million dollars paid for by a $10 per semester recreation fee for all students. What a bargain. And now let us speak of LSU, my dear, dear LSU. Jack Stripling had a great piece in the Chronicle of Higher Education last week. It was headlined, The Lore of the Lazy River. That piece says that the river, and I quote, part of an $85 million renovation and expansion of LSU's recreation center, is the one feature that students consistently said they wanted most, Yet nothing has inspired editorialists like this 536-foot-long lounging pool, which has provided an easy target for anyone skeptical of the university's priorities. Frivolous, the daily reveille, LSU's student newspaper proclaimed. The lazy river rolls on despite school's budget woes, Fox News scoffed with thinly veiled contempt. 
Now, here's the best part, not just of the article, but perhaps of any article ever. It's really one of my favorite moments in prose. I'm sorry to build up the anticipation, but it's really good. Better be good. Away we go. Quoting at length again from Jack Stripling, Chronicle of Higher Education. LSU officials face the politically delicate task of defending an amenity that they seem to prefer not discussing. They've taken to calling the river a leisure river or simply the river, correcting anyone who calls it lazy. There is nothing lazy about the pursuit of health and wellness, says Director of University Recreation Laurie Braden. This is not about a river. This is about health and well-being. From there, the case for the river grows ever more elaborate. I'm still quoting from the article. This is the good part. The river, she says, might bridge divisions across diverse groups of students. So, too, it might offer the healing powers of recreation, she posits. Miss Braden, unpacking that point, cites research suggesting that a denial of play may have been a contributing factor in Charles J. Whitman's shooting spree in 1966 from a perch on the clock tower at the University of Texas at Austin. Did they have a lazy river? (laughs) They did not have a lazy river. Well. They do not have a lazy river even now. Okay, back to me, Josh Levine. You might think these lazy rivers are a symbol of university access. Can I stop you? Did she really say that? Is that what's quoted in the story? Charles Whitman? (laughs) Have you considered that the Lazy River might be the leading mass murder prevention uh, technology in this country? Who needs gun control? Lazy rivers for all. We're controlling these rivers, making them lazy and luring us into not killing each other. Can your school afford... Not to have a lazy river, I think. Perhaps not. That is our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Fort. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. You should also check out Trumpcast, a quasi-daily podcast from Slate that sets out to understand the real Donald Trump. Jacob Weisberg, chairman of Slate, along with writer Virginia Heffernan and Slate's chief political correspondent, Jamel Bowie, talk to historians, psychiatrists, and other experts to help explain who this man is and why this is happening right now in the United States of America. You can hear Trumpcast and subscribe by going to slate.com slash Trumpcast. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Baby. Thanks for listening. The power plant had won it with Roger Clemens clucking all the while. Mike Sosha's tragic illness made us smile. While Wade Boggs lay unconscious on the barroom tile We're talking softball From Maine to San Diego Talking softball Manningly and Conseco Ken Griffey's grotesquely swollen jaw Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chabacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply